Welcome to the Avadian Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Chambers, your social media and public relations specialist. And today we're delighted to be joined by Carlos Aleman. He is the Chief Executive Officer for the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama. And we're delighted to have him here with us to tell us more about his organization, what they do, and just a little bit about his history and how he got involved. Thank you for being here today, Carlos. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're looking forward to learning more from you about your organization. So can you start by telling us just how it began, how we got started with the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama? Sure. The Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama, which we call HICA, was established 23 years ago in 1999 by our founder, Isabel Rubio. You know, she arrived to Birmingham at that time and saw a growing population, but didn't see necessarily an organization that was really trying to help new arriving immigrants, predominantly Latino immigrants, navigate this landscape, right? And so she and several other folks around the community who were really noticing that this was a need came together and established the organization. Okay, so what are some of the programs that she started with or some that she's initiated since then? Sure, I mean, what HICA is, is now an organization that has 26 full-time employees. We have a $2 million budget, but at its onset, it was Isabel on a phone. <laughs> right. And people calling and making sure that they knew how to enroll their kids in school, how to turn on the power. Hey, where do I go to get this form? Right. How do I figure this out? Can you read this letter to me that came in English? And so it was kind of this very one on one interpersonal advocacy work and also kind of case management work, making sure folks were OK. That has evolved into what we now call our strong families program. That's our gateway program. And we serve about three thousand to four thousand people there every single year. Um, and we get a, an array of things. but. That program has really helped us assess what folks need when they come first come to HICA, right, in terms of making sure that they're okay. There's a, it's a stabilization program in a lot of ways, making sure they have access to um, food resources if they need them, they have access to tenant advocacy. If they have been a victim of interpersonal violence, how can they talk to the police, right? So we have relationships there with law enforcement to make sure that folks can access the resources that they need and feel safe in their communities. And that's huge. You can't, cannot do anything if you don't feel safe. We've had conversations with other advocacy group in the area with Bob Dickerson and the BBRC and with Mary Ellen Judah in Huntsville with Neighborhood Concepts. And some of the biggest things they point out to us is if you don't feel safe at home and you can't be fed at home and you don't have a secure home, it's difficult to be productive, period, especially like you were speaking about with students and sure. young children. You know, and I think that you have to make sure that people are okay first, right, before you start insisting on certain trajectories, right, that that may not be on the, the foremost on their mind at that point in time, right? If you have someone who has a sick child and doesn't know how to make sure that they can have healthcare access, we need to figure that out first before we put them on trajectories of entrepreneurship and all these other things that we want them to do. But first, we need to make sure that their home life is okay. When it's wild to think about some of the most important things that just never crossed my mind, dental health is yes. a large part, portion of these kind of things. And even, I mean, shoes, having shoes to wear so your feet are protected. Just small things that don't necessarily go noticed by a lot of other people that are so important. You know, I think that you, you hit something on the head there because poverty is something that really affects our community disproportionately. But also you have issues around immigration status. Right. And there's a lot of barriers to access based on someone's immigration status. And then there's also language access. A lot of our folks, when they recently arrived, don't speak English. And that creates a really high burden, right, in terms of being able to know how to navigate a system in which the language that is being spoken is not one you are familiar with. So we 
also are big advocates around language access. You know, I think that there are plenty of things that corporations and public agencies can do to make sure that they can meet people where they are at, right? And we are big champions of English acquisition, but we also understand the importance of providing interpretation and translation, translated materials, so people can know what what's available to them. I think that's a great a great way to come at it. You know, seeing both sides of it and trying to meet in the middle a little bit. If you're both working towards that common goal of understanding, learning a little English here, providing better materials in Spanish and whatever language we're speaking for other people, you can find a middle ground and find better understanding that way. And we're working towards that as well. From a you know, our website now translates into Spanish. That's um, wonderful. We are hiring more Spanish speaking employees, but it's a slow start. We're trying to get there. It's just not something that is happening quickly. And I think that's a bigger problem we're seeing across our state, really. And I think it's going to be a growing challenge, right? But I think that it, it, in some ways, and, and, and just to be fair, I think it makes somewhat sense, right? We have a population that has grown dramatically in the last 30 years. In 1990, there was 25, 26,000 folks who identified as Hispanic. In 2020, there's 266,000 across the state. So that's a tenfold increase in 30 years. And so these are things that folks are now having to see themselves ramp up services and capacity for. But it's also something that's going to, I think, pay off in a big way. The return on investment and being able to serve a greater population is a win for everyone. When it's just such a large part of our community and you talk about being a credit union, our goals are the community. That's it. You have to serve everyone in the community. And as that's a growing population, it's someone we need, a group we need to focus on. And we're excited to be working with you just having this conversation to start with. So, you know, we also, we have Strong Families program, and then we have our Citizenship and Immigration program, which is our Legal Immigration Services program. We charge a fraction of what a lawyer would charge you to access these um, services. A lawyer would charge you anywhere between five, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for particular products and services, whereas HECA will charge you $200, $300 for the same services, right? And so that's really trying to remove a barrier. So again, people can stabilize. If they're eligible for citizenship, we want them to become naturalized, right? If they're eligible for legal permanent residency, we want them to be able to access those services and not come, come out in debt, just trying to stabilize their status. Um, and then we also have an empowering communities program. There, that is where we have historically had our civic engagement program. Once you become naturalized, we want you to be involved in your community. We want you to be civically engaged. So we have GOTV, get out the vote efforts, voter registration efforts. And we were big on the census, right? We really wanted to make sure that we counted our population and that we realized and understood the rising demographics of our particular population. But also there, we have our college access program. We want to make sure that young people are able to go to college whenever possible and have the um, resources necessary to help pay for that education. But we also understand that the economy is changing, the landscape is changing. So we have now launched a workforce development program to provide pipelines and pathways for different training programs so that folks can find good paying careers. I joke with my wife all the time about this. We went to college and we're still paying off student loans. And I'm like, you know, we've got a little girl on the way. I think I'm just going to teach her how to use a shovel and we're just going to move on that route because it's not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I think that we are placing an undue burden on a lot of our young people to just get educated, right? And, and so I think that anything that we can do to mitigate that is a good thing for really our society, but really our young people so that they can also be economically prosperous. Yeah, and you talk about the, the growing population, and especially and I know in Hoover, where we're located, there is a large Hispanic population. And a resource there for some of the high schools that we've been involved with lately is the River Chase Career Connection Center. Uh, it's run by Dr. Deborah Smith, who's a, a wonderful uh, relationship we have with her. We teach financial literacy there. But that is an alternative to college. It has a full culinary school, it has a full fire college, it has a full nursing training program that they feed directly into Jefferson State afterwards. 
They have a full cybersecurity program and a full electrician. It's an amazing place. I actually was able to visit there when I went through Leadership Birmingham in 2020. And I was just amazed at what they're being able to offer these young people and the opportunities and the variety of careers and fields. And it's just these are not things that were available when I was in school. Like, if, if that was an option, it might have been something I would have taken, a culinary or cybersecurity. I mean, obviously, growing industry in cybersecurity, but just the fact that that's an opportunity is huge. Uh, and speaking about you know, immigration and lawyers and getting naturalized as a citizen, how much does it cost without a lawyer just to go through the process of becoming a U.S. citizen? I know it's not cheap. And it's not cheap, right? And I think that there are different fees that USCIS in and of itself charges, right? And so there is a fee for about $720 just to apply to become naturalized. And that doesn't include biometrics and all these other sorts of things that you have to go through, right? So there's a high um, already kind of economic burden just to try to become naturalized. You know, I'll tell you that I was eligible to become a citizen when I was 14 years old. But because, you know, I came from a low income family and was trying to go to college, I didn't apply to become a citizen until I was 34 years old. Right. And it was mostly not because I was ineligible. It was just mostly I couldn't make the investment at that point in time. Yeah. Makes sense. While I had all these other things that I had to be worried about. So I sometimes see folks in our community and be um, hesitant to apply for naturalization. But I understand because the barrier, economically speaking, is is high. Yeah, and that's you know that, that's a problem. It's a real it's a real difficulty. And like you said, you mean if you want to do it and you want some help with it from a lawyer, it's just even more expensive. And then you speak on the actual difficulties of finding a pathway to actually become naturalized. Right there is a misunderstanding among a lot por- a large portion of our population as to how difficult or easy it is to do it the right way. And so I think that what people don't realize is that we've narrowed the pathways to naturalize in this country over the last three decades, which only makes it more difficult, which results in more people falling out of status and becoming undocumented. And so I think that that's the largest challenge that we face in ways that how do we keep the people who are making contributions to their communities and their schools and their jobs and not punish them in in ways that seem to us counterproductive? Yeah. So talk to me about that process. You said you went through it as a 34-year-old. So you say it's narrowing. How difficult was it just from a monetary standpoint? Like, what was the process like? Well, I think that it, it, it varies from country to country, right? I think that we have systems and visas as to people who can come over, right? But we allot basically the same number of visas to any country in the world. So someone coming from Finland is going to have a much easier pathway than someone coming from Mexico, right? So right now, if you want to apply for a visa to come to the United States as an immigrant, you have to wait 20 years, Wow. 20, that's because of the wait list time. It's a wait list time. Oh, my goodness. And so you're asking folks who are in their prime earning years to who are looking for ways to provide for their families to really just make sure that they can move out of poverty in the country that they're in and say, and then they try to apply and do it the right way. And then told you have to wait 20 years for you to be able to come. I'm not necessarily advocating for people coming in any particular way that they want to come, but You have to understand that folks are fleeing often political persecution. They're fleeing poverty. They're fleeing conditions that any of us, if faced in similar circumstances, would do anything for our families. And that's why we have folks who come in through a variety of ways. Yeah. And 20 years, and you talk about prime earning potential. If you're in those prime earning years of your life, 20 years later, you're not able to do that anymore. Your body deteriorates. You you know you don't have the capacity to work and make that kind of money anymore. Sure, and and so then and then for those of the folks who do come, that many people come on work visas, student visas, right? And sometimes even let's say for example, you're someone who is studying to become an engineer. If you're someone who does data analytics, what have you, you still have to find an employer to sponsor you. 
right? And then that's also based on a visa system and a lottery system. So even if you are someone who's talented, demonstrating an ability to do a certain job and you have an employer willing to do it, it still is a luck of the draw whether you get to stay or not. And so I think that we've created barriers that really prevent us from bringing the best and brightest from all over the world. And that's a detriment to us. And then you have folks who come from all sorts of education levels also face barriers. And so these are things that we need to figure out ways to improve the lives of all folks who live in our country, right? And, and not necessarily punish anyone for wanting to do right by their families. Yeah, correct. I mean, that's the driver for everyone, period. It's your family. That's the most important thing in the world. So it's baffling. I had no idea the waitlist was that long. Are there other programs you'd like to speak about in depth? We'd love to hear more details about your uh, your the family programs and the helping get enrolled in school as well. Sure. I mean, I think the, the, the fourth program that we have is our Community Economic Development Program. We're a United Way agency, so we help people file federal income taxes for free every single year, about 250, 300. There's a misconception that immigrants don't pay their taxes. We help people pay their taxes every single year because we know that if at some point the federal government provides a pathway to naturalization, people are going to have to demonstrate a history of paying taxes. So we encourage that every turn. We also have a small business development program. Since 2013, we've helped about 256 businesses obtain business licenses. And so we've had a lot of success in that program. But what we discovered was that you could help someone open a business, but they often couldn't grow it because they couldn't access capital through your traditional financial institutions. So in 2019, he took a portion of its own money, about $35,000, and then a small seed grant from the Community Foundation of $15,000 and started a lending program. And since then, we have now deployed about $170,000 to 28 entrepreneurs, 85% women, all immigrant zero defaults. That's incredible. And so we're really proud of that work. And I think that that's a lot of the engine that's driving our work because we want people to achieve their dreams and aspirations. And so we're trying to remove barriers, right? And so that we're really excited about that work. And then in that same program, we also have a housing program. We have the only bilingual HUD certified housing counselor in the state. So last year we were able to help about 10 people buy homes for the first time. And so we're really excited about that program. The guys put huge potential for growth as we are um, seeing a rising demographic and looking for folks to move into property ownership, right? Because we're trying to move people out of renting into home ownership. The renting is just a cycle of no return. You're waste, not wasting your money. You have to have somewhere to live, but the home ownership, obviously, something that's going to bring you an investment, a return on your investment later date. But at, at, at this juncture, I'm sure you're seeing it as well. I'm trying to find a house right now is ridiculous. Oh, it's really difficult, which is also only accentuates the need for us to have a housing counselor to help people navigate these challenging times, right? I mean, interest rates are going up, prices are going up, the inventory is low. These are all conversations that we need to have as we help people navigate this. I was I was talking to a realtor yesterday, and he, he straight up said people are buying houses without inspections just to get in and get it. And I, I jaw dropped. I felt like I was going to be sick. Without an inspection, that kind of investment on a house. I know. Could not imagine that. But that, it is the market we live in. We had to offer 10 over for ours, and that was two years ago. And we, we still had to write a letter and send them our wedding picture and say, look, <laughs> we're going to build our family here. We love your house. <laughs> it's just a crazy market. But with the interest rates are slowly rising, so hopefully the market calms down. It seems that we've reached a, a critical mass, or we hope so at this oh, point. Well, I hope that we stabilize. I mean, I think, again, home ownership in our country has often been the vehicle to achieve middle-class status, and we need to hold true to that, right? Because we want people to have a certain amount of success, a certain amount of prosperity, and home ownership has is, is critically important to those endeavors. Absolutely. 
Are there any other programs we want to touch on before we move on to your own personal history and how you got involved with Hika? The last thing is that around the lending program, we established a CDFI. Well, we established an LLC, the Cabino Loan Fund, that is now an emerging CDFI. And we are hopeful that in two years, we will become a community development financial institution that will allow us to do more lending for our community. And those are great programs. We like, we spoke earlier about Bob Dickerson and Mary Ellen Judah and their organizations, and we're able to send small businesses who don't quite qualify for our programs yet because they just don't have the capital or the history of documentation. They're not they don't have enough proof that they can be successful for our you know certain processes. But they're able to help them, like you're saying, with smaller businesses who aren't qualifying for the products for banks. They need that outlet, and they're it's going to help them grow into the opportunity to come back to us so we can help them get bigger as well. One hundred percent. You know, Mary Ann and Julia and Bob Dickerson, they're great folks who are really have their pulse on the community and what this um, means in terms of growth and success. Um, you know, Bob is actually on our board. So we count him as a friend. Um, and it's important, though, to understand that, you know, the Camino Loan Fund that HECA is starting and has established is meant to be a complement to traditional financial institutions. Right. We understand the importance of the banks and their role in the credit unions. Um, but it is incumbent upon us to take the risk to make sure that our community has the opportunity to access financial products so that we can put them on a path to then go to a traditional institution and then grow their business and grow the opportunity that may be available to them. And sometimes that's all they need, just that one opportunity. Like you said, there's zero defaults. It's clearly working out so far. I'm, I'm really, really shocked to hear that 85% female-owned biz. Tell me more about that. I'm just curious. Sure. Well, you know, and I'll say this. I mean, HECA has historically predominantly served women. Right. Okay. We are a, an organization that is mostly staffed by a team of Latina women. Right. And so I think that and, and, and I'll say this, the women in our community are so strong. They're so powerful. I mean, I think about my mother. My mother came to this country when she was 19 years old, had two children. She had me at 16. She had me and my, at, at my brother at 17. And she is someone who has a fighter spirit. She is someone who's really resilient. My, my folks separated when I was nine years old and my mother had to figure out how to learn English, get a job and, you know, keep us afloat. And she did that. She did that. And so when you see these women in our community then have ideas about entrepreneurship, about things that they potentially could grow. I have all the faith in the world in them, right? In their ability to do that because I've lived it. I've seen it through my mother's own experience. My mother was able to then get a great job because she did some job training. She was able to buy a home and it transformed our trajectory. I'm able to go to college and I'm able to do a lot of things I do because of the sacrifices and efforts my mom made. And so I'm a big believer in removing barriers and creating opportunities for folks because our immigrant community is so resilient. They've already done the most difficult thing they'll ever do in their lives, which is leave their country, leave the place where they speak the language, leave their families, and then come to a new destination where sometimes they don't speak the language. They've already done the hardest thing they've ever done in their lives, much harder than most of us will ever do. And so do I believe they can start businesses? Absolutely. Do I believe they can buy homes? Absolutely. I'm not worried about that. And so we talk about this at, at, at HECA. It's like, should we give this person a Yes, we'll figure it out. We'll walk with them. We'll meet them where they are and provide resources. But can they do it? Yes. You'd love to hear that. And of course, you know, the Latino community is very well known to have strong women. They are the backbone of most societies, even in our community. It's uh, my mother also was young, a young mother and I see how much she worked, but I can't imagine how hard they worked to give me an opportunity having to do that without speaking the same language as everyone else in the country. Just unbelievable resilience. Our programs are interconnected. 
Yes, sir. Right. We want to make sure that they ref- they refer to one another, uh, make referrals to one another, and just making sure that we can meet our community where they are. We have a kind of a wraparound services approach to make sure that once you come into HECA, there's a certain wide array of opportunities that we can provide. And, and and so we do our best to educate our community about everything that HECA does. But I'll tell you, you know, people walk into HECA every day and don't realize all the things that we do, right? They, some some people just come for the strong families piece. Some people just come for the immigration piece. And then when we tell them, well, actually we have a college access program too. We also have a workforce development program. We also have an entrepreneurship program. And so I think sometimes they're amazed. We had an open house just on May 5th of this past year. And it was amazing. We had about 300 people come. It was a full house. The reactions to folks, to really see all that we do, the 26 folks that we have working, dedicated uh, team members, that's the best part about working at HECA is the folks I get to work with and see them communicate the message of what we do and see other people feel inspired and empowered by what we do. That's the best gift. And that's that's why we were excited to have you on today. These resources are out there for people and they, they don't know. There's so many people that have just don't know. So we're excited to get this word out a little bit more and make sure people understand the opportunities they have that they can take advantage of. And hopefully they'll come see you and take advantage of that. We certainly appreciate it. We certainly hope so. Well, now tell me a little more about how you got involved. When did you start with HECA? Sure. Um, well, you know, I grew up in San Francisco. I was um, the son of immigrants. I, you know, I was born in Nicaragua. My family came in 1982. We fled civil war. And so Nicaragua enters a civil war between Contra Sandinistas in the 1980s. And my family leaves and moves to San Francisco. Most of my dad's family also left. Part of my mom's family left. And so I grew up in the San Francisco Mission District, which is a historically Hispanic and immigrant neighborhood. And from there, you know, I grew up knowing that college was important. My parents instilled that in me, like, you know, insisted really that this was the only option. You are going to college. And then I told my dad I was going to become a history major and he almost had a heart attack. But (laughs) that's what I wanted to do because history was the one discipline that really talked about where I came from. You know, when you leave a country that has a civil war, the people who left don't want to talk about that civil war. There's a lot of trauma involved. There's a lot of torn families. And it was in the classroom that I really learned about where where I came from, the history of U.S. intervention in Nicaragua, the history of revolutions in Nicaragua, and understanding, okay, this is how we arrived here. So that was really powerful to me. Then I went to community college, loved my history teacher there, really talking to me about what it means to be Latino and Hispanic in this country, right? What the challenges are, uh, what the opportunities are what this country can afford us, what the, and just understanding the, the, the real social context. And so from there, I was kind of just driven to continue studying history. So I went to Michigan State. I got my PhD in history focused on immigration issues and labor issues, actually. My dissertation was on Nicaraguan immigrants to Costa Rica in the 1930s and 40s. Right, what you uh, know. <laughs> and um, it was really fascinating. And that's where I met Michigan. That's where I met my wife. Uh, she got her doctorate in community psychology. And so we met there. Eventually she finished and was able to get a postdoc at the CDC in Atlanta. From there, we moved to Atlanta for two years. And then when I finished, I applied to 17 jobs across the country and interviewed at about five places. And Sanford University was the first place to uh, offer me a position. And so we moved to Alabama, not knowing what to expect. You know, you have this misconception again or this national conversation around Alabama. And you don't know what to expect. And so even when I told my wife, like, Alabama, Alabama. But we came to visit and we saw Birmingham and we, we thought, okay, we could do this, right? It looked nice. Ultimately, we came and we've now been here nine years. 
We moved here in 2013. And so I, I became a professor, did that for five years, loved Sanford in terms of the students. The students were fantastic. We had great colleagues. Campus is, of course, beautiful. And I really thought that I, that's what I would do for the rest of my life, to be honest. But I also wanted to be close to my community. So I started volunteering at several different nonprofits around the area that worked with Latinos and immigrants. And so I volunteered at the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice. I volunteered at the Adelante Alabama Worker Center. And then I also volunteered at the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama. Hika was one of the places that everyone told me that I needed to go to, right, in terms of how I wanting to get engaged with the community. So I had an opportunity to meet Isabel. And I started giving tours to students who were interested in going to Sanford. That's our, that was our initial engagement. And I would give talks to young people about Sanford and what opportunities existed there. And eventually I was asked to join their board, the board of directors at HECA. And I did that. And eventually I became chair of the board. And then Isabel and I developed a friendship and she was thinking about succession. And I didn't know how or why, but I felt I could do that, right? I felt like that might be something I might be interested in. And so we started having that conversation because the impact that Hika was having in our community then and the impact having now is great, right? The opportunities were great. And so while I loved teaching, especially talking to young people about ideas and things that we could do, I also felt compelled to have a more direct impact on what was happening. As you know, the immigrant narrative that exists in our state has not always been great. In fact, it has been disastrous for That's our community. Putting it, putting it bluntly, but correctly. <laughs> you know, in 2011, Alabama passes the harshest anti-immigrant law in the country, House Bill 56, HB 56. And it was really detrimental. I mean, it was so harsh that the stated aim of the bill was to have people, was to have people's lives be so intolerable that they would auto-deport, that they would self-deport, they would choose to leave. So, you have that, and then you have, in 2016, a national conversation around immigration that even becomes more blatantly aggressive and anti-immigrant and more xenophobic. And so I found myself just thinking, what can I do? What direct impact can I have? And I started having these conversations with my wife, and I think I told her, like, I think I need to leave academia, and I think I want to go work at HECA. And so... Having those conversations with my wife, having those conversations with Isabel led us to a place where we thought, okay, let's have a succession plan. Isabel is a visionary. So she said, why don't you come on? You'll learn for a few years under me directly, and then we can do this. And so that's what we did. So I came on in 2018 as deputy director of HECA, learned directly under her wing. I was given the opportunity to manage programs, really learn our, our team, our work, our staff, engage with our community, learn how to lead the organization, see its finances. And so just really strategic approach to how we did this. And last year she stepped down and in this year I assumed the role, but I'm grateful to her. I'm grateful to the community for providing me this opportunity to have a direct impact, but I'm doing this work because I want to serve. So you talk about Isabel. What, what, she, that's a great opportunity to actually get to learn under her, though. I mean, so many people jump into a job or hire from outside the organization and you just have no idea. I mean, how valuable was that to see day to day what she did and help you step into the shallow waters and then swim after she taught you what was going on? It's invaluable, right? I think that, one, she founded this organization. She has a heart and a vision for what we could do in Alabama in terms of being an organization that bridges communities. She's very clear in our mission, right? In that we are here to help people achieve their dreams and aspirations, but also to bridge 
among communities, right? And so to see her at work, I mean, look, I consider myself a pretty good public speaker, but Isabel Rubio is an amazing public speaker. And just hearing her tell the stories of the work that we were doing, the communities that we were impacting, the relationships that we were building across the state with several different partners. It, it, it was really an opportunity to see someone who dedicated their lives to this, right? And what it also meant, right? Because I think that even now, I'm amazed at how much work there is and how much we're doing that, but just seeing how much is required of yourself to put into it, right? And so she did that, she, she did that for over two decades. And so for her to share three years of that, with me to teach me how, how, how to do it and, and, and be intentional because one of the things that she also wanted to do is want to make sure that that we had an immigrant lead the organization right right and so that was by design right i mean isabel herself will tell you that she is a third generation mexican-american from mississippi <laughs> right um and and so she was made up her um context was the civil rights movement right but she also understood the importance of providing an opportunity and pathway for immigrant leadership at an organization like HECA. So, you know, I think that I am grateful to her for the opportunity to learn under her. And then it also made things, to be honest, a lot easier in, in a lot of ways because I need the team. Right. So when I get to step into the role, everyone, we're already familiar. We already have a work plan. And so the last year really was made up of all of us, Isabel, myself and the whole team create a strategic plan for the next five years and, and, and so that we can ensure the success of the organization, but more importantly, ensure the ongoing um, empowerment of our community at large. What's the plan for the next five years? Has there Was that part of the strategic plan or is that, that's been four years ago? I guess you're reaching the end of that plan, aren't you? No, no, we just started last year. Okay, we, gotcha, we established gotcha. it in 21. So we're in year one of our strategic plan, but it really is just making sure that we are taking care of the sustainability of the organization, right? How are we growing our budget to better serve the people that we serve, right? And, and that those are a lot of initiatives around fiduciary responsibility as any nonprofit is uh, needs to take on. But more importantly, we have programs around the CDFI, right? Around right. the Camino Loan Fund. Make sure that we get that certification within two years so that we can grow. The idea being that we have a million dollars to be able to lend out within five years. That's going to be a huge goal for us. I think that there's a greater conversation around broadening who we, we serve, right? I think we will always predominantly serve Hispanics and Latinos because that's our core community. But we also want to serve any and all immigrants, right? And who, who may need naturalization services, who may need entrepreneurial services and whatever they have. So we want to be able to be a bridge to other immigrant communities as well. The challenge is that there are no other hikas in the state. And really? so- Like for any other countries, it's just y'all or just- it's us. In this state, it's us. There are smaller groups. There are other groups that may have a person dedicated to Hispanic outreach, but HECA, in terms of the wide array of services and how we do it, we're the only organization that does it. So part of the strategic plan also, it has a, a pathway for expansion. And what does that look like for us, right? What does it look like for us to be in Montgomery? What does it look like for us to be in Huntsville? So those are conversations we're having with our board. Opportunities around housing are great. How do, what does it look like for us to develop place, right? There's a lot of conversations around preservation of place, but we also are interested in creation of place in terms of community empowerment and community development. There's also conversation about which immigration legal services we offer. We want to be able to offer uh, asylum cases. Right. As that's an, a growing percentage of the work that we are seeing come. And currently we don't do that, but we want to do that. And then the question of mental health. 
we're seeing a huge need for mental health. These are services that we haven't provided. So we're trying to figure out what does it look like for have for us to have a therapist on staff, right? And also create a network of mental health professionals that can help serve our community. So those are all things that we're trying to make sure that we can do for our community. The thing about HECA is that it matures alongside the community that we serve. You know, in 1990, the community needed very particular and specific things. 30 years later, you're having now the children of the people who initially migrated here graduate college. So you're seeing the need again for college access, workforce development. Workforce is brand new. We just we just launched that this year. And so that's another part of the strategic plan. But you're seeing the need for really creative ways to serve our community as their needs changes and their aspirations change. And so we are just rising to meet that challenge when you talk about the second generation who is coming out of college now, there's an opportunity there. They're passionate. They have these tools now to come back and help, to be these therapists. Some of them may be going into those fields. So that's that's just going to help grow. That's better for the community, period. Absolutely. So in 2018, we actually established a junior board. Awesome. And so that, that's been fantastic. Now we have about 17 folks, young Latino professionals mostly, though, you know, it's not limited to that, but that's who we have been working with and because we want young people to be involved in Hika at an early stage in their careers. So we work with high school kids, we work with kids who are in college, and then we work with these young professionals, right, to have them be engaged with the community and they can make an impact too and serve as mentors for these young, these younger children that are still coming up through the schools. There's nothing more valuable than seeing someone who has done it, who can talk to you about the pathway to get there. Absolutely. And there's nothing more powerful than seeing someone who looks like you do it, right? And, and our young professionals are predominantly bilingual, right? And and we have to think about, I want to say that, that that's a strength, right? That to have folks who are bilingual, I think that, that's something that we need to champion more often, right? That uh, too often I, I see this rhetoric around English only and, and it's counterproductive. It, it's also, you know, it doesn't value really the ability of these young people to speak two languages in a way that opens doors for everyone. Well, it just doesn't make sense. If the country we're supposed to be built on is a melting pot, why would we limit it to one language. But uh, as you say that, you know, b- bridging between them through bilingual people, you see a lot of those second generation immigrants who are the bridge for their parents and their teachers in schools. And it, it's something that they, they are a huge component of helping people become part of the community because they're the ones that can bridge that language barrier and they are incredibly valuable. Sure. And, and you know, and, and there are pitfalls to that too, right? Because I think that, you know, we see that every day, like there's challenges in our system right now where let's say you're a mom and you go to the hospital and you're getting a diagnosis that's difficult, but you don't speak English, so you bring your child. Now your nine-year-old has to tell you what this diagnosis is, and they don't really understand medical-level terminology. And so that's why we're such, again, huge advocates for language access. We need to be able to provide interpreters at these different facility, hospitals, courts, uh, law enforcement agencies, because it shouldn't necessarily be on young children to be the translators for their families. Of course, once these young people grow up, though, it's an invaluable asset to be able to speak two languages. That's a young person as a nine-year-old having to tell your your mother of a diagnosis that could be terminal, could be incredibly traumatic. But on the other side, if I was a nine-year-old and I spoke a different language than my parents, I might be lying about my homework on regular basis. <laughs> so there are problems. But as they get older, I can just see how much how much that could provide a bridge for the community. If people want to get involved, obviously y'all are, I mean, you said you have 26 people, which is pretty big for most nonprofits I work with. But if the plans you have and the programs you have and the growth you have, clearly you could use uh, some help and some expansion. How do people get involved with the organization? 
Well, we have a great volunteer intern coordinator, right? I think that if you're a young person in college, we want you to come intern with us, right? We've developed a now a much more robust intern program, internship program, and we're really excited about that. The easiest way to do that is to go to hikaalabama.org and click on our volunteer tab. And we want folks to come out. But we also have opportunities. You know, we have uh, several fundraisers across the year. We have one coming up right now on June 11th, the uh, Hika Night Colonel's Barons, right? So we have a night where we go to Regents Field and celebrate Hispanic culture through baseball. And so we need volunteers to talk about Hika there, right? We have a pig roast that the junior board throws for us in August. And so we'll love to have folks there. We have our annual tamale sale. Right. I think that a lot of folks who know Hika is often through our sale of tamales, right? And we have what we call tamale captains. So you mean you can sign up and you can volunteer to pick up people's orders and deliver it to them, right? And that helps us in terms of logistics and infrastructure. But also programmatically, we are developing more mentorship opportunities, right? We have this college access and workforce development program. We want young people to connect with professionals so that they can see what pathways people have taken to achieve their dreams and aspirations. And so they can see that there is a way to do this, right? Uh, so we're offering more opportunities for mentorship. We're actively now creating more opportunities for people to plug in. Let's say if you're a banking professional, we want you, you to come and have us have a webinar on whatever product you're offering so our folks understand how to access those services. If you're an insurance professional, help us walk our community through that. And so there's always opportunities to come and speak to our community and we are happy to provide the interpretation translation when you come to Hika. So I think that we want people to share their expertise. And, and so those are ways that people can plug in and connect. Well, thank you so much for being here. Of course, we'll uh, include the website in the description and make sure to link to y'all's Facebook page and your social media profiles as well when we post. Any last thoughts, any last words? You have provided just an abundance of information and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, you know, I just want to say that, one, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and speak on behalf of the organization. Um, you know, I, I really am more just often a representative of our organization. I can't say enough of the incredible group of women, predominantly women, that I work with, right? Uh, there are only two men who work at Hika, me and Carlos Torres, who, are, who is our programs director, but everyone else is a woman. And they are just, one, so committed to the community that we serve. And I'm just thankful for the opportunity to work with them every day. And two, if there are people who have questions about immigrants and immigration, contact us, call us. We are wanting to have these conversations as opportunities to educate, but also opportunities to build partnerships, right? Alabama will achieve or and become a better state when we all can come together and have conversations where we all can grow, right? We want Alabama to be successful for all Alabamians, and that includes immigrants. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. We really have appreciated that. Just so much information, and we encourage you to reach out. Uh, these conversations are mostly fueled by misinformation spread around the media. So why not talk to the people who are actually involved and learn more about it? But thank you again. It's been just an absolute pleasure. And this has been a fantastic episode of the Evadian Podcast. We hope you have a delightful day. <laughs>